Pray with me as we enter his presence this morning. Father, open eyes, my eyes, our eyes, so we can see your truth today. Open our ears so that we can hear your voice. Open our minds so that we can understand your holy, true, and righteous word. Let our hearts be open so that we may receive all that your word wants for us to receive today so we can become your hands and feet, sharing these things with others. We ask this, of course, Father, in your precious Son, Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your outline out. Have it ready. Hopefully you have a pen or pencil. If not, nudge your neighbor. Say, I need a pen or pencil. These things are for you to be able to take, to be able to walk in. Over the last two weeks, we've examined some foundations for faith, and we've heard how Christian life begins by sitting and soaking at Jesus' feet. You heard that, right? The way that we sit at his feet, we soak in his word, we listen, we learn from him like Mary did. How did you do with that this week? I'm backing up the train. How did you do with that this last week? It's one thing for a pastor to stand up and to preach the word. And the people go home and say, oh, that was a nice sermon. And that's the end of it. You guys realize that the powerful word of God which I'm preaching, is not just man's thoughts. These things are not just for a moment. It is for us to apply, to learn from, to grow in, to develop, to enjoy to the fullest because God himself has given us this. Oh, Holy Lord, thank you for transforming us from a thought-led people to a motivated people. We're not about receiving because we've received so much. It's about doing something with what you have given us from your word to do, to be, to express. Each phase of spiritual life leads in one direction. That direction is with God, and it's called forward in faith. We don't sit, cross our legs, say, I got faith. Faith becomes a motivator, not a stillness giver. Faith is something that we stretch in because we don't know it all. Faith is something that we don't understand. I would encourage you guys to look at Hebrews chapter 11. It's not what I'm preaching on this morning, but that's called the faith chapter in the Bible. And it goes through the history of faith and talks about different people from early on with Noah and going up through Moses and Abraham and through all the different people in the Bible and how faith didn't just look at them, how faith motivated them, changed them, and took them forward for the purposes God had for them. Powerful chapter. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. You can write it in your notes there if you want to. Just go back remember It is a wonderful chapter to look at because it spurs us on in our faith, can transform us in realizing God has purpose for us, not just a good idea for us. Motivational factor for us, not just a hope someday, maybe, somehow. Faith goes beyond the hope. Faith becomes hope in action. 
that sees God's kingdom come and his will be done. And the part of this faith foundation that I'm giving to you is not only about sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking in him. Today we're going to look at standing with him. Next week we're going to look at walking with him. These are all purposeful. This is a purposeful journey I'm taking you on. Some of these things you're going to say, I already know that. Well, bless you. This isn't just about learning or coming to an aha moment. However, I have those all the time. Even with scriptures I've read many times before, I still have those aha moments. This week I had an aha moment that was so obvious. It was like, what? But it was just what God was speaking to me in the moment. In that scripture, he was bringing out this truth and just saying, here it is. And I went, it almost took my breath away. Wow, I'm glad God breathed his breath into me. It was through his spirit that that aha moment happened because suddenly I was captured again by the truth of how powerful his Holy Spirit is in us. So I need to ask you a couple questions and you'll see them up on the screen. What is God like to you now? What is God like to you now? And in your outline, it just has a dash. It's just a straight line there in your outline, I think. What is God like to you now? If we're talking about faith, we realize that we don't know everything about God, right? We know a few things that are pretty incredible, and we're going to look at some of those today. However, Faith is knowing who God is, but not fully knowing who he is. Because we walk in a faith of recognizing the fact we don't know it all, we don't have it all, we're not going to have it all until we meet him face to face. Then things are going to all of a sudden make sense. Then things are going to come together. And yes, things come together, and they're going to come together this morning through God's word. However, it's powerful to realize that we will never fully know God till we are with him. We walk by faith. Not by sight. You know that scripture. We walk by faith, not by sight. What's God like to you now? You should write it down and say, God, I, you know, I haven't really thought about it very much, but this is what I know about you. Secondly, how do you know him? Because faith is not just about having an idea but it's about entering a relationship with him, about knowing him, which is more than just a figurative, imaginative thought process that you put together in your own mind. Knowing him is talking about relationship. It's talking about community, communion with him. It's talking about being close to him so that you can listen to him and hear him and walk with him and he can walk with you and help you. You need a foundation of faith to be able to go there. If you don't recognize that God is who he said he is and is more than he said he is, then you're probably going to give up really quickly in this fight of life. Because faith is about more. How do you know him? At the end of Jesus' life, we see a powerful picture. It's a whole little story wrapped up in a very little bit of Scripture. 
But it demonstrates Jesus' call, how Jesus calls us to go on to the next. Not stay satisfied with the now, but to go on to the next. I want us to look at Luke chapter 23. This is the end of Jesus' life, literally. And I want us to see what it has to say for us this morning. And then we're going to break it down according to how Paul sees it. Let's start by looking at Luke 23, verses 50 through 56. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked, and I put the word boldly, that's a factor, boldly, for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Jesus and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. It's been a few years now, but I still have a lot of old, uh, old Our Daily Bread devotionals. And I remember this one story, it was back in 1982, so I mean it is, it is back a ways, that I got this out of an old, I still remember it. There was this man who took on, he was a professing Christian, and he took on a job to be a lumber camp worker. And before he went, a friend of him came and found out that he'd been hired there, and he said, oh, my friend, you're you're going to have to be really careful because those lumberjacks, if they ever find out you're a Christian, they're going to have you for supper. And it's going to be a tough time for you there in that camp. The man said, I know, but I really need the job. The next morning, the guy took off for camp. He went there. A year later, he came back to visit. While he was in his town, his friend came up to me, I mean, up to him, not me, came up to him and he said, wow, how's it, how is it going there? I see you made it back safe. How did they treat you? Because you're a Christian. They said, oh, oh, it was fine. They didn't give me one bit of trouble. They never found out. Now, we might laugh at the story, and some of us cringe because it's too close to home. Yes, we live in a world that is hostile to Christianity. If you haven't noticed in California, most of society is opposed to Christianity and has terrible things to say about it. Sometimes for some people who say that they believe in Christ, they just want to blend in. Blend. Not appear to be of Christ. Is that living for Christ and with Him? It's easy to blend in for some people. Maybe to laugh at coarse jokes. Never confront gossip when it comes your way. Never say a word when that would identify us as being a believer in Jesus Christ. Besides, it might cost us our reputation in our job site. 
Sometimes even Christian friends say it's hard to hold on to your convictions for fear of what even our Christians might think of us. If we stood up boldly for Christian principles, even some Christians might say, what are you doing? You want there to be peace around you. Right? Are you connecting with any of this? I think that we should be interested in this story of Joseph of Arimathea because he was the very man who buried Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. How many of you know where Arimathea is? Anyone? Okay, if you look at a map, here's a map of, of all of Israel. Here, right in the middle, right at the top of the Dead Sea, across from the Dead Sea, is the big city of Jerusalem. 25 miles to the northeast up here is where Arimathea is. Northwest. Did I say northeast? Northwest. Northwest is where Arimathea is. You have to go over some hills to get there. It's hilly country, and it's just coming down to the flatlands. Right about that spot is where Joseph was from. Not where he was living when this took place, but that was where he was from. Just like Jesus of Nazareth didn't stay in Nazareth. He went all around Judea and Galilee and around those areas there. But he was Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he was born. Joseph of Arimathea was born in Arimathea. Not too far from Jerusalem. How many of you think you could walk 25 miles up and down hills in one day? For some people, it took them a couple days to get there. Some people that were really healthy... And on the move, they could maybe make it in a day. They'd have to start early and get there after sunset. It was quite a hike to get there, 25 miles. Not quite a marathon, but if you're going up and down hills, you can feel it. Here he is, this man who grew up or was around and born in Arimathea. Just explains what he was about in the next few verses. He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. By the way, that's about 70 guys who were the leaders. They were the principal workers and leaders and people who judged and did things for the nation of Israel. That was a part of their job, civic matters and all that kind of stuff they were involved in. It was the members of the Sanhedrin that had been the ones who condemned Jesus to death. Even though we just read in the Scripture that Joseph wasn't a part of that group. He didn't want Jesus to die. He didn't think he should die. But he was a part of that group and he was outvoted. It says interestingly in John 19.38 that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. In the Sanhedrin, he had a lot of opposition to that kind of thought. He may have brought a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts about what could have happened or what should happen, but he also read the minds of the others around him and heard their thoughts and their anger and their angst at who Jesus was and what he did. And I think probably out of fear of what could have caused a lot of disruption for his own personal life, he was kind of secretive in what he did. Kind of like the man who went to the lumberjack camp. Fear caused him to not be bold. What about you? Have you ever chosen to be quiet out of fear 
of what someone else might think of you? In this story, suddenly now, Jesus has died. He's dead. His disciples all went into hiding. Joseph gathered his courage. That's what it says in Mark 15, 43. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus so he could at least give him a proper burial. If he hadn't done that, Jesus' body probably would have been thrown into a heap of garbage and burned. I could tell you more about that. There's a whole lot that happened with the people who were murderers and cons that got put up on a cross and killed. They just threw them into a big burn pile. There was no proper burials for them. And it's one of the reasons why we could actually experience some major resurrection proofs because he was not thrown into that heap. So we can thank Joseph for a proper burial, for a proper burial site, and for giving us a lot of evidences for our faith. He didn't seem to have anything to gain and everything to lose by finally identifying himself with Jesus. Here is Jesus. He's dead now. No one was expecting his resurrection, right? Even though he talked about it, no one was really going to believe that that was going to happen. They had never watched it. Oh, wait, Jesus did raise someone from the dead. But, but that was a little while ago. You know, it was several weeks ago. It wasn't on their mind that Jesus would ever be resurrected and come back from the dead. He watched as Jesus, Joseph watched along with the others, including some from the Sanhedrin, as Jesus breathed his last. It would have been so much easier for Joseph to just think, oh well, Jesus was a good man. He was probably a good prophet of God. It's too bad that these things just happen. But life goes on. I'll have more influence if I don't rock the boat and keep my voice in the Sanhedrin. I'd better not do anything to upset anyone or jeopardize my position of influence. It would have been easy for him to think those kind of thoughts, right? Let's not rock the boat. But in spite of the risks, Joseph came out of hiding and took a stand for Jesus by providing him a proper burial place. He gives us an example of what the Lord wants us to do. He gives us an example of what he wants believers to do in taking a stand for him in our world where we live. Okay, you say, so how am I supposed to do that in my life? I'm going to ask those two questions that I asked just a couple minutes ago. I only changed one word, but what's God to you? What is God to you? Are people gods to the place where you are more afraid of them than Almighty God, who created you, who, as we sang, put the breath of life in you? Are you more afraid of what people might think of you or might say of you than what God would think of you or say of you? Seriously? Who is God to you? How do you trust Him? If you speak for Him and live for Him and honor Him in your life, does that demonstrate your trust in Him? Or are you trusting in yourself, your money, your bank account, Trusting in your house to be okay and not be burned down by radical people who hate Christians. What do you really put your trust in? Is it a real trust in a real God or is it a fake trust in a fake belief? 
Where is your faith in God? If you want a foundation that is solid, you must decide to choose God to be your foundation of all your faith. He's not a playmate. He is the God of the universe. Created all things, put it all together, and He put you here to enjoy it. He wants you to know Him and to share Him and to love Him and to walk with Him. He wants you to be His people every day, not once in a while for just a little devotional time or just to go to church. He wants you to live for Him every day. That's about standing for Jesus Christ where you are, who you are. Standing for the one who gave you life, the one who forgave you of your sins. Hot diggity dog! Sorry, that's my phrase. My other phrase is, woohoo! He did it for me. He did it for you. He gave you life so you could have more than you've ever desired or thought in your own life. All the stuff you could produce on your own, all the income you could ever make, all the decisions you could ever encounter, He's giving you more because He loves you more than just those little things that you can produce. He's the one that created you and gave you a mind to be able to think, hands to be able to do, feet to be able to walk. He has purpose for you. Even in a wheelchair, right? God can live in you and move through you. It doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are, what we've done or what we haven't done. What matters is who we are in Christ and how we stand for Him in our world and how we live for Him. And we obviously are not there just to be quiet. We're to take a stand because it's truth. It's life. It's not accidental. It is all His ways. You know what I find interesting? And I think many reasons to stand for Christ are found in God's Word. But I'm just going to focus on one main place to start. I think we need to go and stand at the foot of the cross. To re-examine what that meant, who was upon that cross, and why that cross is empty today. I can't say for certain what made Joseph come out of hiding on that day. Maybe it was the result of a long process. He had heard Jesus teaching, especially that final week in the temple. He had heard reports of miracles. <laughs> Especially, remember, I was talking about Lazarus, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He had known the Scriptures all of his life. He grew up knowing the Scriptures. And Jesus had probably uniquely spoken about how he fulfilled all of those messianic promises and prophecies, even in his presence. He also could see and hear the jealousy and the selfishness from his fellow members of the council. And unlike a majority of them, Luke says Joseph was a good and righteous man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, if you're waiting for something, you're prepared for something, don't you pay attention to the things happening around you that point to it? You're looking for a job. Don't you pay attention when you get a phone call from a job placement service and they say, hey, we've got something for you? Or do you just ignore the call? No, you answer the call. You want to know about that job. You want to know about that situation. You want to know about what's going on. That's a part of living when you're waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph's convictions about Jesus grew, and he may have grown more uncomfortable with the views of his fellow members in the Sanhedrin, but I think that the deciding factor that pushed Joseph over the line 
was standing at the foot of the cross. Watching Jesus die. Think about it. In Luke 23, it talks about it, and it talks about things like the centurion who saw the events at the cross, especially Jesus' final cry. He heard and saw Jesus' final cry, giving praise to God, his Father. Then the next verse says, When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. That's where Joseph was, watching, listening to the taunts of the people walking by, saying, if you're the Christ, take yourself down from this cross. But Jesus had more purpose than they ever dreamed he would have by staying on that Christ cross and dying as the Christ, the Messiah, for the sins of the whole world. Amen? Not only were these people members and watching, not only were the members of the council there watching and throwing insults, Joseph also saw the sky get dark on that afternoon. He heard those words. He felt the earthquake that actually split the curtain in front of the holy place. He watched and saw the people walk away in sorrow as we just read. All of this gathered steam in Joseph's mind. I think the Holy Spirit prompted him and he broke down and he said, that's it. I can't hide my convictions any longer. I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to Pilate. And if I can give this man a decent burial that he deserves, then I'm going to do it. He decided to take a stand. The cross is the center of all of Christianity, all of Christian faith. And while we can't look at the events firsthand, as Joseph and the others did that day, we can read about it and know what happened and saw what happened and learn from what happened. And we can walk to the foot of the cross and look up and recall and remember from their eyes what happened putting to use the implications that were in place for us today. Paul summed up the gospel saying these words, and this is what I'm going to focus on. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day. You see how the cross is central to the gospel? If you go there often, you'll never be the same. The cross will remind and strengthen you to take a stand for Christ because He went to the cross for you. I'm going to look at just four parts here really quick. Referred to here in this section. A, the very first part, Jesus died. I'm a police chaplain. Pastor Pete was a chaplain also. We did some things together in that. But as a police chaplain, when I go to a person's home, after someone has died, the family doesn't know, I have to go in, two of us have to go in, an officer and I would have to go in. We have to sit down, we have to have that person sit down, and then we have to tell them, your loved one has just died. 
We don't use words like passed away or slipped into eternity. We have to be very, very clear so the person knows the truth. Your loved one just died. We don't say it in a non-loving way, but we have to be clear. Because otherwise the person will have hope that maybe that person is going to survive. And that's not what it's going to be. They just died. We don't say give up the ghost. We don't say any of those other phrases. We have to be clear as a chaplain and as an officer when you approach somebody in that situation to say they died. It was very important for, for uh, Paul when he wrote this to say Christ died. It was impactful and purposeful to recognize the fact that he just didn't fall over and collapse because he felt bad. That he could rebreathe and he could rejoin the rest of society shortly. Jesus Christ died. That may sound obvious, but it's an important fact to establish. If Jesus Christ didn't actually die, then that purpose of his death was meaningless. That purpose of his death for us was meaningless. If he didn't actually die, he couldn't pay for our sins. He had to die to pay the penalty of our sins. He didn't swoon. He didn't go into semi-consciousness or some comatose state where he could come back, he could return to life. The Gospels made it clear that Jesus died the soldiers knew that he was dead. They didn't even have to break his legs. They knew that he was dead. If they went along and they broke the legs of the people who were on the cross, it was so that they couldn't hold themselves up and they would suffocate themselves. That sounds really gruesome and gross, but that's literally what they did all the time. That was their job, to make sure that they died. But the, these guys who saw death every day, caused death every day. They knew that Jesus had died. The soldiers knew it. And instead, one of the soldiers stuck a spear into Jesus' side to see if his blood came out mixed with water, separated with water, which is an example that the heart had stopped working because when blood and water are separated in the system, that means it is no longer circulating. Oxygen is not getting into there. Therefore, the person has died. Mark 15, and 45 says, Pilate waited to hear from a trained Roman centurion, kind of like a coroner in our days, that Jesus was dead before he would let Joseph take Jesus' body down from the cross. All the eyewitness testimonies verify without question that Jesus was physically dead. It might seem like such a moot point but it's not because of the power that came with that very thing. All these Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus died. The fact that they were fulfilled in such an obviously unintentional way to all the people around underscores God's sovereignty and the perfect accuracy of biblical prophecy. For example, the fact that the soldiers broke the legs of the two men on either side of them but didn't break his legs, in spite of orders to do so, fulfilled Scripture that none of the Passover lamb's bones would be broken. Exodus 12, 46, and Psalms 34, 20. Talk about that. 
many, many, many centuries before the lamb died. The soldiers piercing Jesus' side was probably a whim part on the part of the soldier instead of breaking his legs to make sure. But he poked his side. There's a scripture in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which actually says that Israel will look on me whom they have pierced. Going to the cross will also remind us why he went there on purpose, and that is B. Jesus died, here's the purpose, for our sins. Is that not something to stand on? To recognize as a foundational part because he died for your sins? He died for your sins. Millennia before you were ever here, he died to pay the price for your sins. Wow! Jesus didn't just die a common death like the guys on either side of him and others that may have been on the hill that day. He offered himself as the Lamb of God who is the perfect sacrifice for the sins that we have all indulged in. You got that, right? The darkness at noon revealed that the judgment of God was poured out on Jesus. That's why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had never been apart from God. He was always a part of God and his plan and his purpose. He was always listening to him, going to him, meeting with him, celebrating and walking with his Father. Everywhere he went, he was in communion with him and participating with him in all of life on earth as well as in heaven before he ever came to earth. Here he is suddenly at a place where God withdrew from Jesus because Jesus took on himself the sins of the whole world. And God the Father couldn't, couldn't handle that. There was so much evil that was represented and poured out on Jesus on that cross. The Father had to turn away. Suddenly Jesus realized the gravity of what was happening when he couldn't even talk to his Father. He knew it ahead of time. He even prayed, Father, if there's any other way, don't let this happen. Get this away from me. I I don't want to have to go through this if I don't have to. If there's any other way, God said, no, there's no other way. You are to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus opened the way for us to come into the Holy of Holies when that torn veil was ripped apart in the temple. That was scary for every Jew that was anywhere near that place. Not just the tearing of something, not just the earthquake, but what it represented because God was the one that dwelled in the Holy of Holies. What would happen in a Jewish mind if the Holy of Holies was suddenly opened up? Where would God go? Would he leave them? as we think often of what Christ did for us there, it'll help us to take a bold stand for Him. The one who endured all of that just out of love for us. 
If he didn't die, he would not be able to be resurrected. In which case, unless Christ, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 17, unless Christ was raised to life, your faith is useless and you still are living in your sins. Thank you, Lord, we don't have to live in our sins anymore. Going to the cross also, see, will also remind us that Jesus was buried. He was dead. He died for the sins according to the Scripture. And now we find that He was buried. This is a summary of the Gospel. Realize the impact and the power of what He's saying here. Jesus' burial is actually further evidence of His death. If there, hadn't been, if there had been any glimmer of life left, the people who took him down from the cross, who took him to the tomb, would have noticed that he had some life in him. As mentioned, the fact of his burial in the tomb as opposed to being tossed in the dump outside the dung gate, outside of the south end of Jerusalem, provides us with many different evidences of his resurrection. Matter of fact, Isaiah 53, 9 announces, and this is 500 years, not 50, 500 years before Jesus ever came. It says this, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The Gospels all verified, telling us that Joseph was a rich man. It's significant that Joseph buried Jesus in his own hewn tomb. You know how long it takes to chip away rock to be able to make a tomb-sized place? That's a lot of work. It takes a lot of money to buy the land and then to do all that work, to chip it all out himself and to get it all ready for someday where he might die or his family might die. But he gave up this place for Jesus. No one had ever been laid in that tomb before. So someone couldn't come along and say, well, this person was in there and that person was in there and that person was in there. Who knows if Jesus was actually the one that died? Or what is the purpose of this? He was the first one to be in that grave, a newly hewn grave. And it fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. The fact that it was a new tomb just gave evidence. Again, of what the scriptures talk about. Not only that, but a heavy stone was rolled in, across in front of the entrance. It was sealed with a Roman seal, and it was guarded by an elite Roman guard. All these things are more and more evidence that the tomb was secure from grave robbers. If Jesus wasn't a real sinless man who died for our sins, then we would have no salvation. Isaiah. Back to Isaiah again, chapter 53, verse 10. The Lord decided His servant should suffer as a sacrifice to take away the sin and guilt of others. That's us. For we have all sinned and come short of God's glory. So it's important to affirm Jesus' death and burial. He was the only body there. The disciples saw the grave clothes lying where Jesus had been laid in that tomb, but His body was now gone. All of these facts about Jesus' death and burial should strengthen our resolve to take a bold, significant stand for Him because He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
They all gave solid, significant evidence to who he really was. Proofs. Finally, going to the cross, we see Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. You saw that scripture, what Paul wrote. He said, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. These are all significant things. Raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Just like the scriptures had said hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier had spoken of this Messiah. Why is it that the Jews missed him? Why is it that everybody that knew these scriptures, read these scriptures, understood them, didn't recognize him? As you know, the resurrection is the foundation of Christian faith. It is God's proof to all men that he will do everything that he promises. And if you struggle with taking a bold stand for Christ, go often to the foot of the cross. Remember that Christ not only died for your sins, but he also was raised from the dead. And he is coming again to judge people in righteousness. The gospel. You hear people say, this is the gospel truth, what I'm telling you. It's because the gospel is the truth. There's nothing better to compare it with. What he said and what they said and what they encountered were all truth because they saw it, they recognized it, they became witnesses thereto, and all of them died for their faith. They put their lives at risk because of how important it was. All the things that happened were purposeful and they had deeper meaning than just a surface, oh, that's a nice thought. And it was real for everyone who had put their faith and trust in him. Go often to the foot of the cross. Not just when we have communion. Go to the foot of the cross. Look up and see Jesus who was dying for you and your sins. Remember what happened when he went through that because he was dying for your sins, to pay the price for your sins, to be able to eradicate those things from your life, to be able to eliminate those things and to give you eternal life as well as a blessed life now. Yes, I know it's not easy to take a definite, bold stand for Christ in our world today. Why? Because it's costly. And we can only do it if we understand and prepare ourselves for the cost and the results. We aren't told what happened to Joseph of Arimathea after that day that he buried Jesus. There's no other, one of the Gospels, Paul doesn't talk about it. No one talks about whatever happened to Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know. But we know that God will take care of him because of where his faith was. If you struggle with taking a bold stand for Christ, go back again to that foot of the cross. It's not too abstract for us to consider the fact that Joseph probably encountered a lot of feedback from those other 69 guys. Probably a lot of turmoil. They may have even tried to eradicate him from being on that council because of what he did in standing for Christ. He took Jesus down from the cross and transported his body to the grave before sunset. He also bought linen wraps and spices, and the women bought spices as well. He may have had to bribe Pilate, we don't know, to release Jesus' body. 
It was not normal to get a body. That was not normal. But he was willing to give generously because he believed Jesus was Lord and Messiah. You know how I end every sermon. If you've been here before, you know those two words that come up every time. So what? So what? You've heard this story before. Some details may be a little bit different in the way that I said it, the way that I spoke it, but it's the truth of the gospel that resounds with our hearts because it is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So what? I'm going to ask a question. Are you willing to stand for Christ in all the rest of your life? Think about it before you answer. Don't just give a quick nod or a quick thought. Are you really willing to stand for Christ in all the rest of your life? If so, then say, I will stand for Christ. If so, don't just say it with your lips. Live it out with your heart. I will stand for Christ in my life. Will. That's a willful choice. And it has to be your choice. Because that's what God really wants from you and me. He wants our faith to be put into action. Not to just sit around and hope nice things happen to us. Because if you're taking a stand for Christ, I doubt that everything's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. Because there will be people that will defy you, that will have problems with you, that will try and say things against you. Does that reduce your faith or does it strengthen your resolve and faith in him who gave everything for you? I think we should daily ask ourselves this question for the rest of our lives, every day. Will I stand for Christ today? Monday? Will I stand for Christ today? Tuesday? Will I stand for Christ today? Wednesday? You know. Will I? Lord, help us. Whenever life, wherever life takes you, whatever happens to you, whatever you face or deal with that you couldn't possibly know of right now, will you say, I will stand for Christ, period? Maybe exclamation mark. I pray our deepest passion and commitment will be the reality that we stand for Jesus Christ. Every chance I get, every place I go, this is what my life is going to be about. Making a stand for Jesus Christ. It's a powerful commitment, my friends. But it is a commitment. It is a choice whereon we take our faith and put it into action. God can do awesome things with a person who's totally yielded to him. There will be a day, unless the Lord comes back first, when you and I will have a tombstone. What will be written on it? What will that little dash between the years actually mean? What will it represent? 
What would be more important to your eternity than maybe hearing God say when you get there, well done, good and faithful servant? Aren't you looking forward to Him saying that about you? My good and faithful servant? I want to read a scripture for you in closing. It's from 1 Timothy. I think that it's in your bulletin. I think that it's in your outline at the very, very bottom there. But listen to what Timothy has to say. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed, right? Through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has, I love this phrase, destroyed death. For those who believe, you know, he has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Hmm. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle as a teacher. And as a teacher, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Can you say amen to that? What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that it was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Guard it. Father, I already know you've spoken to our hearts. We've already prayed and asked you to do it. We've already welcomed you into this place to come and and be a part of this day with us. We've already asked you to open our ears so we can hear, open our minds so that we can understand. I pray, God, that we won't just cognitively say, yeah, I get it. We will make a choice today to boldly stand for you in all of our lives. And as we hear this song, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit's voice will resonate with who we are in making that choice today, now, at this time. Come. Come. We invite you. Come. Speak into us today and take us deeper, further with you, the foundation of our faith. Thank you, Lord.